0: In the engineering lab at OXO, senior product engineer Mac Moore builds prototypes, bringing OXO gadgets to life.
1: I cut the blade out of a bigger spiralizer and glued it inside a cut-up water bottle. And it turned out it was like the perfect size to hold in your hand. But we got like these springy, fun noodles that we really liked. And I brought it home that night to make zucchini pasta for dinner. And from then on, we just made it real.
0: Bring your dinner creation to life. Shop all products at OXO.com. That's oxo.com. OXO. Better guaranteed. Hey, thanks to our presenting sponsor, Bob's Red Mill. Stay tuned at the break for their quiz. It was the 1990s. Regis and Kathy Lee were still on the air. Fusion cuisine was a thing, and boy bands were everywhere. America and the rest of the world were becoming tech-savvy. Apple had released the brand-new Teal iMac. People carried Nintendo Game Boys around with them, plus a whole lot of batteries. And connecting to the internet sounded like this. Our computer addiction was well on its way. Computers were in just about everything by that time. Our appliances and cars, cash registers, gas station pumps. This tech automation was supposed to make life a whole lot easier, until it didn't. In 1998, people started talking about something called the Y2K bug. Computers had been programmed to assume that all years began with a number 19, so if you inputted 98, the computer would read 1998. But with the year 2000 coming, that might mean that computers would think it was 1900 instead. The Senate panel describes Y2K, the year 2000 computer bug, as a worldwide crisis and one of the most serious and potentially devastating events this nation has ever encountered. Surf through the internet these days and you keep coming across a strange new word, Teotihuacan. The word stands for the end of the world as we know it.
2: Now, This is not one of the summer movies where you can close your eyes during the scary parts.
0: What would happen? According to some people, absolutely nothing. But others thought it might be wise to fill up the gas tank and buy some extra bread and milk, maybe pull a few more dollars out of the ATM. You know, just to be safe. I think that's good advice in any uncertainty. But as the clock ticked steadily toward the end of the millennium, panic began to take hold. Embedded computer systems ran everything, all sorts of industries— banking, travel, power grids. People started predicting that airplanes would fall from the sky, financial systems would be wiped out, and entire countries may plummet into darkness. The U.S. government started a Y2K preparedness center to both help with any possible disasters that might arise, as well as tamp down ever-growing fears. But that did not stop the panic.
2: A lot of Americans, nonetheless, are taking no chances. They're prepared to survive no matter what happens.
3: I've got a, a revolver right now, but I want something something more.
1: That was a dragon's breath shell. It can shoot a 4,000-degree flame 300 feet. It's also the most popular ammunition among Y2K customers.
0: People began hoarding batteries, flashlights. They bought flamethrowers. A survivalist group in Utah stole a water truck and people amassed entire rooms of food. All of this was to prepare for the very worst fear of all. It was the event. The one that through diplomacy and threats of war, military preparedness, we had avoided for decades. At the stroke of midnight on January 1st, 2000, when the computers failed, military defense systems would malfunction. Their underground silos would open, and they would unleash the entire supply of missiles upon the Earth. Global thermonuclear war. They'll tell you everything's fine. They're
3: lying to you. <laughs> Everything ain't fine. We, we are this close to just going crazy. Going.
4: Keep in mind that this will be a much greater disaster for those who are not prepared.
0: From America's Test Kitchen, I'm Bridget Lancaster, and this is Proof.
1: I remember my next-door neighbor had his son prank their New Year's party by turning off the main power to their house at midnight. But otherwise, nothing
0: happened on the scale predicted. This is Barrick Wright, our producer for this story. His connection to prepping and food storage started pretty close to home.
1: Yeah, my parents were in that group of people caught up in the Y2K scare, and they prepared for it by storing
0: food. What kinds of things did they decide to store?
1: All shelf-stable items. You know, if the grid went down, we weren't going to have refrigerators. So we had rows of metal shelves in our garage lined with five-gallon buckets of dried foods, like wheat, dried beans, powdered milk, dried beef.
0: As a kid, what were you thinking? Were you freaked out about Y2K? (laughs)
1: Uh, I wasn't that freaked out by Y2K exactly, but I don't remember thinking it was strange to put away all that food either. But I guess I'm in the minority there because I still get incredulous looks whenever I tell people my parents stored food for Y2K. When the whole thing was over, I think all the news coverage and the fact that the world didn't in fact end uh, really helped cement the idea that stockpiling shelf-stable foods in case of the apocalypse is... Something crazy people do. But I've always kind of thought that can't be the full story. My parents weren't trying to escape society. They weren't afraid of a looming Divine Judgment Day. They weren't part of some paranoid fringe political group. They just wanted to be able to provide for the family if something catastrophic did happen. To them, it felt like the responsible thing to do at the time. So I guess I've always believed that it's possible to store food for non-weird reasons. And uh, I wanted to figure out what some of those reasons are.
0: And that's what we're here to figure out?
1: That's what we're here to figure out. I think a similar picture comes to mind for all of us when we think about doomsday preppers. Hi folks, Canadian Prepper here. So today I'd like to share my thoughts with you on surviving the first 100 days of a catastrophic nationwide power up.
5: This bunker even
1: comes with an escape hatch in case the entrance to the bunker is blocked after
5: a nuclear disaster. I have 340 different types of squash, 200 different types of peanuts. I have just over 11,000 types of seeds on this floor. What is this? This is a Colt AR-15.
6: Got your ammo? Got some ammo, magazines. We got enough bullets to start an army here. Um,
1: yeah. But this story isn't about them, because in order to understand how we got here, we have to go back in time. Our story starts with a woman named Esther Dickey. Many consider her the godmother of modern food storage. Esther was born in 1915 in a small town in rural Utah. She was part of a big family, two boys, 13 girls.
2: All of her siblings, except the boys, had Snow as a middle name.
1: This is Esther's daughter, Rita.
2: Because that was a very well-known relative that they were descended from.
1: The relative that all Esther's siblings were named after was Erastus Snow. And he was well-known in Esther's church, the Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints, also known as the Mormon Church, because he'd helped settle the church throughout Utah around the time of the Civil War. Anyways, Esther's family grew as much food as they could, bartered or traded for the rest. They raised animals and kept bees. Rita remembers the stories.
2: That was just the way that they lived. The country folks knew how to prepare food. They knew how to can it and process it and save it for winter and build their root cellars.
1: Esther grew up, and she fell in love. His name was Russell Dickey and sat behind her in high school. Russell was older than Esther. He had a motorcycle. He dropped out of school, though, his junior year, landed a job in California building and painting movie sets at Paramount Studios. Russell chased the job, and Esther chased Russell. Russell.
2: There's a story of her and her sisters going down to see him in California. And they they rode on top of a farm truck filled with, I can't remember what vegetable, but some vegetables laid out on top, burrowed down, whatever, going from Utah to California. (laughs) Crazy girls. But what do you do when you're in love?
1: (laughs) The two saw each other long distance for a few years. They got married shortly after Christmas in 1934. Esther would have been about 19. The newlyweds settled into a home in Burbank near the L.A. River. Esther and Russell's son, Neldon, remembers those early years fondly. He grew up catching frogs and fish in the river. We had a, a lot of fruit trees and berries and things like that. It was a very large lot. And so we always had food and stuff like that to eat. The Dickies' way of life mirrored their upbringing in Utah. They grew their own food and bartered or traded with their neighbors. It kept them connected to the land. Russell's work was seasonal, and they were able to get through slower periods this way. They valued their connection to nature, to the land, and they spent a lot of time outdoors. It seems Esther and Russell couldn't get enough of that, actually. They spent most nights outside on a porch they built on top of their garage. Unless
4: they were sick, they were always outside, it seemed like. It wasn't my thing. They had an electric blanket and heavy quilts and stuff like that, and they just sleep outside. It didn't matter what kind of weather it was, unless it was a big windstorm or something. But they enjoyed that.
1: The Dickies were practically still newlyweds in 1937, when their church, the Mormon Church, hosted an important conference that changed the course of Russell and Esther's life. The president of the Mormon Church, J. Reuben Clark Jr., stood up at the lectern and warned that the U.S., might get wrapped up in another global conflict, and it could get messy. So, he said, it'd be a good idea if individual members of the church took steps to store their own supply of food, fuel, and clothing.
0: Let every head of every household see to it that he has on hand enough food and clothing and, where possible, fuel also for at least a year ahead.
1: Now, before I tell you what happened next, I need to explain that this suggestion to store food wasn't completely out of the blue. Uh, By this point in the Mormon church's history, food storage had actually become one of their things.
0: Well, what do you mean? It was one of their things? Well,
1: before settling throughout Utah, members of the Mormon church had been on the run. The church was founded by a guy named Joseph Smith, who claimed he received a vision from God with instructions for starting a new church, the True Church. And that was a controversial thing to say around people who belonged to other churches in pre-Civil War America. And so mobs chased this young church population out of every city and state they tried to settle in. New York, Ohio, Missouri, Illinois. It was in Illinois that a mob actually killed Joseph Smith. And at that point, the group decided to make a run for the western part of the country. They ended up settling in Salt Lake City, Utah.
5: They were so uh, traumatized by what they'd experienced in the more eastern part of the United States that they wanted to be self-sufficient.
1: This is Kate Holbrook. She's a historian who works at the Mormon Church's headquarters in Salt Lake City. And Kate explained to me that the church initially stored food to establish some baseline food security. Wheat was a popular crop because it grew well, stored well,
5: could be ground up into flour, sprouted into a grass, or boiled and eaten whole. They wanted to be... Self-sufficient and independent from the rest of the country so they could never again be as destitute as they had been in their early history.
1: But it wasn't just self-reliance the Mormons were after. They also viewed food storage as a necessary precaution against the end.
0: (laughs) As an end of
1: days? Exactly.
5: There was a belief in the church that Christ might come, or the Armageddon might happen in 1890.
1: Oh, boy. Yeah, so in preparation for the end, capital T, capital E, the church kept storing wheat. Lots more wheat. But the world didn't end, at least not everywhere at once. Large-scale disasters happened all over the world in the decades that followed. You had a massive earthquake in San Francisco, a horrific famine in China. And the church thinks well, it's not the end we had in mind, but maybe this food we saved can help.
5: They think, oh, we can share. This is the kind of thing we've saved our wheat for, and we'll send it and be part of the solution.
1: So that history of storing food to be self-reliant and also to help people in need, it's all there in the background when the Dickies get the church's annual conference report that recommends ramping up their food storage. But things were a little different this time in terms of how much they were supposed to store. The church president said, store enough food so that, if necessary, your family could survive
0: for a whole year. A year of food? That's going to take a huge, huge root cellar, especially if you have more than a couple of kids. I mean, how much food do you even need for a family for a whole year?
1: (laughs) Yeah, those are questions the Dickies were sorting through. Uh, It seems nobody really knew initially. But the message connected with the Dickeys' experience and, frankly, enthusiasm for self-reliance. And they started working through what they'd need to store if they and their growing family planned to survive a hard year. And Esther got really good at it. She elevated food storage basically to an art form.
0: And you said this was in 1937, right? So some hard years were really coming up very soon, as I guess the church president predicted.
1: Right. The U.S. did become
0: involved in a global conflict, like he said namely World War II. And we know that World War II was a catalyst for some serious innovation and commercial food preservation really starting to make strides.
1: Right, that's true. At first, the war really put a strain on the food industry, but in this case, necessity was the mother of invention. And so farmers and food processing companies started developing new technologies to make food production more efficient. And from there, the number of canned, boxed, frozen products that we would find in the middle of the grocery store, and it all really expanded.
0: So you've got all these new shelf-stable products, and that means it's easier to take them home and store them. So did Esther and Russell take advantage of this in order to build up that one-year supply?
1: Not at all in their case. Uh, According to her daughters, Esther had no use for canned goods and commercially produced foods. She knew how to grow and can her own and build and stock a root cellar, and she figured her way was healthier. Here's Rita.
2: She just recognized that you can't process foods and have them be as good as what God put into the earth, and we get to pull out of it.
1: If anything, the country's technological progress during World War II made Esther and Russell more determined to live a life that made sense to them, a life connected to nature. After the war, they looked around them and had a hard time recognizing their home. The wild banks of the Ely River, where their children used to play, had been paved over with concrete. Once rural Los Angeles was booming into a sprawling metropolis, as their son Neldon puts it. They could see that, you know, civilization was creeping in on them. So the Dickies decided it was time to move. They found three acres in Gresham, Oregon, outside Portland, with a little stream running through it. They built a house on the property themselves. They eventually got some goats and chickens— They continued sleeping outside. And of course, they continued to store food. They built a new food storage room under the house. This is Esther's daughter, Liz.
3: And so we had the walls lined with wheat. In fact, the stairs were made of cans of wheat. And there was a wall in the basement that was filled with wheat that we didn't know about until we sold the house. And the man that bought it put a pick to it to remove it and remodel it. And out came pouring buckets and buckets and gallons of wheat.
1: Your parents put essentially a fake wall up that had even more food behind it?
3: Yep. Yep. It was, (laughs) instead of insulation, it had wheat.
1: But by the time the Dickies moved up north, the Cold War with the Soviet Union was underway. People were afraid of a possible nuclear attack. Paranoia was in the air. Liz says that her father, Russell, started to feel defensive.
3: My dad was a uh, John Birch member, and firmly believed that the communists were going to come in and play their flute, and we as teenagers would all just follow them into a van and go off to concentration camps.
0: (laughs) Ah, yes, the John Birch Society. I mean, you know, it's about limited government, but they saw communism everywhere.
1: Right, and he started storing more than wheat. Liz says he stashed 26 loaded guns around the house in the event of an attack. Now, the new house in Gresham began to reflect not only the Dickey's values of self-reliance, connection to the land, preparedness, etc., it also started to reflect their fears. Russell was prepared to defend his wheat-lined fortress with violence if it came to it. I think Esther understood the anxieties of the time. She understood the desire to put up defenses and make plans to survive whatever was coming. But her personality cut the other way. She never lost sight of the church's greater mission— to provide for others in need, too. Liz remembers this.
3: I do remember a discussion where my mom put her foot down. She says, no, this will not happen. (laughs) This is not going to happen, that you're going to be militant or thinking that you're going to use this for any other reason than just we're storing food because the prophet told us to.
1: For Esther, food storage was a practical, real, urgent act of care for one's family and community. And in that spirit of generosity, she started working on a book to share everything she'd learned over her lifetime. Her goal was to make survival principles and self-sufficiency accessible to anyone around the world. So she traveled around the world, researching what real families needed to know. In her travels, Esther learned that storage space and money were big limitations for many families who might otherwise be interested in storing food in case of emergencies. And eventually, her food storage recommendations came down to just four relatively inexpensive shelf-stable food items. Wheat, honey, salt, and powdered milk.
0: That's it? Just those four ingredients?
1: Just four ingredients. But the star of the show, besides Esther's own ingenuity, was the wheat. So she sprouted wheat berries to make wheat grass, so you'd have some green on the plate. She milled wheat berries to make flour, She added water to the flour to develop gluten, which can be used as a meat substitute. And she also steamed and toasted the wheat berries so she'd have some nutty flavor and crunchy texture to layer in. And Esther turned these four ingredients, wheat, salt, honey, powdered milk, into an impressive roster of over 100 recipes that included wheat burgers, gluten sausage pizza, spaghetti and wheat balls, tacos, and more. I mean, she's just crazy innovative. Liz explained that the family often served as a focus group for some of her uh, inventions.
3: We were the guinea pigs. Anyway, she made gluten drumsticks for our Thanksgiving dinner, which were quite, (laughs) they, they were kind of, well, you know.
0: I want to be sure that I am understanding this. Perfectly. Esther is making all of those entrees with just wheat, salt, honey, and powdered milk, but nothing else. The book was trying to prove you didn't need anything else,
1: but Esther admitted many of the recipes in the book could be improved if you had other ingredients at hand. So, after approximately four years of intense writing and recipe development, the final book was finished. 180 pages of food storage principles, recipes, and practical survival tips. And she had a few color photographs in there, too, of how these meals might be served on a plate. Esther called the book, Passport to Survival. The publication of this book turned her into a minor celebrity, too. People would fill local church gymnasiums to hear Esther speak and present recipes with the four foods. Liz remembers the crowds at her demonstrations.
3: It would be packed. There would be several hundred people at those demonstrations, The lectures were totally about how to store. People were so confused on how much to store. And so she would just, you know, she'd have graphs of children different ages and how much to store for them and and then how to use it and how to um, get your kids involved in it.
1: For anyone looking to get into food storage in the early 1970s, this book was the ultimate resource.
3: Lots and lots of, of mail. She had a lot of people come and visit her from different parts of the world, too. So it was far-reaching.
1: For the rest of us, she was Esther Dickey. And mom and grandma, to the people that she influenced, she was a guru of what to eat and how to preserve and prepare it. It's clear from my reporting, even within Esther's own family, the impulse to store food can combine with other fears and start to look like something else.
0: (laughs) Something like paranoia? Yeah.
1: Yeah. But I think Esther stands out because of how little paranoia or hoarding food factored into her project. She really wanted to help others and help others help themselves. Esther's children and other Mormons I talked to for this story, who've maintained a practice of storing food, told me they've sometimes had to live on their food storage before, usually in the wake of losing a job. They've also had to give their food away to family members and friends during hard times. And in all these instances of private, personal loss, the church's food storage practices make a real difference for people.
0: So have things changed in the food storage movement since Esther published Passport to Survival?
1: The Mormon church still advises its members to keep a supply of food, but the guideline is now for three months, down from a year. Maybe the biggest change is that there are more shelf-stable foods available at your local grocery store. If you're someone who wants to build up your supply of stored food, You have more options than uh, wheat, salt, honey, and powdered milk. But I wanted to know what or who is driving this new output of shelf-stable foods. I figured in order to understand the building blocks of contemporary food storage, I'd need to meet some of the folks pushing what ends up in the middle of the grocery store.
0: And after the break, we take a trip to the grocery store. It's time for another Bob's Red Mill quiz, and this week I have social media extraordinaire Charlotte Arity on the line. Hey, Charlotte. Hey, Bridget. Now, as part of your job, I think you need to be up to speed with all of the latest food trends, right? That's right, Bridget. Okay, so here's the question. Miley Cyrus, who's famous for lots of things, is an outspoken vegan. If she wanted to bake cookies, what would she use to replace the eggs?
3: Hmm. I know aquafaba is used a lot in vegan baking, but I'm not so sure it would work in cookies. That's the best guess I've got.
0: Well, it's a good guess, but I have no idea what Miley would use. But if she were a wise baker, she'd use Bob's Red Mill Gluten Free Egg Replacer. It's made from potato starch, tapioca flour, baking soda, and psyllium husk fiber, and it makes a fabulous cookie, completely egg free. For more information and delicious recipes, visit Bob'sRedMill.com. Is your kitchen faucet smart? Well, the Sensate faucet with Kohler Connect is your voice commands it to turn on and off. You can have it dispense a precise volume of water from a cup to gallons or a preset amount for your water bottle or coffee pot, all hands-free. The Sensate smart faucet is compatible with Amazon Alexa, Google Home, and Apple HomeKit. And the Kohler Connect app lets you monitor water usage by the week, month, or year. It also tells you if there's a leak. You tell that faucet what to do. Kohler, for people who do their best work in the kitchen. Learn more at Kohler.com. Sure, everyone knows that sous vide is great for cooking steak and eggs, but it can do so much more. And that's why Chef Steps created the jewel. I went into the test kitchen to find out what my colleagues do with theirs.
1: This roast beef that we have, we set it to a really low temperature and we let it go overnight. The collagen breaks down, the meat gets super, super tender. Basically, prime rib, but a quarter of the price.
0: Polenta grits. Normally, that's a very hands-on dish. You have to, like, stir it a lot. Sous-vide is pretty cool for it because it's hands-off. I actually have a couple of things in the sous-vide bath right now, this very moment as we speak. Jewel, Perfect food, every time. To get yours, visit chefsteps.com slash and use code ATK2019 to get $15 off. That's chefsteps.com slash J-O-U-L-E. Code ATK2019. America's Test Kitchen Kids just launched a cooking club for young chefs. Now stay tuned at the end of this episode for a preview of our new subscription box program, The Young Chefs Club, plus a discount code. Before the break, our producer, Barrick Wright, was about to embark on the next leg of our journey to understand the motivations behind contemporary food storage. Barrick, I think you were just about to head out to the grocery store.
1: That's right, Bridget. I took a trip to the grocery store in Natick, Massachusetts, with some food technologists who serve an important role in making shelf-stable foods both healthier and, if you can believe it, longer-lasting.
4: 4C has a lot of things, um, 5B, 5C. So let's just, we could probably start toward this way.
1: This is Lauren Alexic. She leads a food engineering and analysis team at the Combat Feeding Directorate, or CFD, at the Natick Soldier Center it's where the U.S. military develops the food soldiers eat. The U.S. military got more heavily involved in food preservation technology around World War II. U.S. soldiers had to cross an ocean even to get into the neighborhood of the fighting in that war. And once they arrived, they'd be on planes, in boats, jumping out of planes, jumping out of boats. They'd be in really hot weather, really cold weather. The military needed portable combat rations that wouldn't spoil through all of that. So... The American military basically figured their needs had outgrown off-the-shelf solutions provided by the food industry. And they established a food science laboratory that partnered with food scientists and industry to tackle the military's special food preservation requirements.
0: And the Combat Feeding Directorate is the current-day version of that military food lab.
1: The Combat Feeding Directorate pursues lots of questions in food science about flavor, nutrition, texture, But how to get an incredibly long shelf life out of foods? That's the big one. So
0: Lauren helps develop the food that the soldiers eat. But what does all of this have to do with groceries?
1: Well, that's what I brought Lauren to the grocery store to learn. Uh, The military does all this work to figure out how to improve shelf-stable foods on behalf of US soldiers. And in some cases, they take existing commercial food products and push them even further. So how does their work impact the civilian marketplace? Powdered
4: milk. What we've done since World War II and up into through the 1950s and 60s was look at other ways of drying milk so that the quality was better and the, it reconstituted more easily when you added water to it.
1: Cake mixes.
4: Military researchers started to do their own dry blending and removed dry eggs and other products that are typically liquids that are required to make cakes.
1: Dried spices.
4: Around the 1950s, the U.S. Army began experiments with irradiating fruits, vegetables, dairy products, fish, meat, and spices. Spices, today, are still irradiated. Most consumers probably don't even know that. M&Ms. M&Ms, in fact, were made exclusively for the U.S. military during World War II.
1: Then, Lauren took me over to the canned tuna section. And here, on the top shelf, above the small round cans of albacore and chunk light, you can see the same tuna, but in a bag. More specifically, a heat-resistant package called a retort pouch. But, Bridget, don't let the name confuse you. A retort pouch is basically a can, or at least follows the same process as traditional canning. It's a sealed container that's subjected to a high-heat sterilization process. But here's the kicker. The pouch
0: is thinner than the can.
4: In a very narrow profile pouch, you hit the sterilization um, temperature throughout the food faster.
0: So the food in the pouch is being heated for less time. So that's gotta taste better.
1: Exactly. Lauren says the quality of food sterilized in a pouch is a lot better than a traditional can.
0: The Retort pouch has
1: revolutionized military combat rations. They taste better now, they're more portable. Retort pouches have been the gold standard for packaging and preserving rations since the 1980s. Most people would know them by the name Meals Ready to Eat, or MREs. But the Combat Feeding Directorate is developing other technologies to improve the quality of rations. If you want to taste the future before it happens, though, you've got to visit the Combat Feeding Directorate. And that's why, Bridget, you and I took a trip to Natick just wanted to stop by and say welcome to CFD and you're in good hands with Lauren and Amazing. Julie Let's... and the team and everybody. So we are standing in the pilot kitchen oh, well, of the time. combat feeding directorate. It's... it's a large room with high ceilings, almost like a gymnasium, but of course, it's a kitchen. It's got long counters, stand mixers, baking racks, whole bit. There are 24 different menus in two different boxes of 12. This is David Aseta. He's the public affairs officer for the combat feeding directorate. He's also a retired Army lieutenant colonel who served over 20 years active duty. He was in Iraq, Afghanistan, plus some other posts. We'd spent so much time talking about MREs, David wanted to make sure we got a taste.
4: This is beef stew.
1: Vegetable crumbles with pasta and taco-style sauce.
4: Chili and macaroni.
1: This is Mm -hmm. elbow macaroni and tomato sauce.
4: Gravy with seasonal beef brisket slices. Meatballs and marinara sauce. Spaghetti with beef and sauce.
1: So, Bridget, what did you think of your MRE?
0: You know what? I was surprised. It was was actually pretty good. I think I picked a winner with the brisket. I mean, I I keep on expecting to go in here and almost have to find the bay leaf to take it out, because I can taste bay in there. I can taste, like, some herbs and spices in there.
1: Well, that tasty brisket is the result of a really lengthy process that the Combat Feeding Directorate has for rolling out MRE menus. All new MRE menus have to be what's called warfighter-approved, which basically means if soldiers don't like it, it doesn't go into the MRE. And that's not just a one-time thing. If something's been in the MRE for a while and soldiers are tired of it, that item can get voted out.
3: That mashed potato that you just
2: tried is coming out of the MRE next year. It's
1: not as popular. This soldier feedback cycle drives pretty much all the innovation at the Combat Feeding Directorate, and it seeds a lot of ideas for new MRE menus, too. The food technologists take soldier requests really seriously. Pretty much every request pushes the limits of currently available food science and technology. Like one of the latest warfighter requests to become a reality, pepperoni pizza.
2: It's really a huge
5: challenge because of moisture migration, the different ingredients, the different layers of a pizza.
1: This is Julie Smith, a food technologist at the Combat Feeding Directorate who also oversees field testing for new menu items.
5: We come up with different prototypes, but they just never worked and met the shelf life requirements until more technology was developed to allow for the pepperoni pizza to be what it is today.
1: The pepperoni pizza entree wasn't in the box we sampled at the Combat Feeding Directorate, but it's now available in the MRE at large. Julie told me it's taken 20 years to get the pepperoni pizza right.
0: 20 years. I mean, I was blown away by that because I... At America's Test Kitchen, we definitely take longer than most people to get every single variable in a recipe. Perfect, but 20 years? I mean, that's a whole other level.
1: I know. And the pepperoni pizza is just one soldier request. There are tons of others that have literally required the evolution of food science as we know it. Basically, if at first you think there's no way to preserve something for three years at 80 degrees Fahrenheit, which, by the way, is the CFD's shelf life target, keep trying until the technology catches up.
0: Well, there was one piece of technology that you and I saw in the CFD's pilot kitchen that seemed like the future had already arrived.
1: Yes, the vacuum microwave dryer.
7: My title is uh, senior food technologist. This is Tom Yang. He's
1: heading up the CFD's experiments with vacuum microwave drying.
7: Actually, my official title is still food technologist. But the people look at my gray hair and think, wow. Might as well call you senior food technologist.
1: <laughs> the chamber where you load the food for drying looks like an oversized clothes dryer, though there's enough tubing and wiring coming off it to fill a one car garage. The novelty of vacuum microwave drying technology is all there in the name, actually. Let me quickly sum up how this works. First, the vacuum part conventional water boils at 100 degrees Celsius. But if you can use a vacuum to change the atmospheric pressure, it will actually boil around 30 to 40 degrees Celsius. So it's not as hot? Yeah, not as hot. So you don't have to destroy a lot of good quality of the food. Then there's the microwave part. Microwaves can heat food substances more efficiently than a conventional heat source by affecting the water inside the food. But put the vacuum and the microwave together and you can sterilize food at a low temperature and very fast. The Combat Feeding Directorate has been refining this technology with the company that makes the dryer for about 25 years. And now, the machine is capable of preserving food like a charm. All different kinds of food, like bacon
7: and eggs, macaroni and cheese. And we have tried many, many ways. And this, so far, it's the most amazing one, that, that cheesecake. Cheesecake, you can only keep in the refrigerator for no more than two weeks. But this one, after trying, it's a three-year shelf life at ambient temperature.
1: This technology is one of the best tools in the CFD's arsenal to finally crack one of the toughest challenges they face, improving the quality of fruit and vegetable options in the MRE. This
7: is the pineapple. I just tried yesterday. Wow. It's kind of chewy. There's no preservative, no nothing.
0: Really? It's a different texture than
3: dehydrated.
7: Yeah. The dehydrator usually is kind of crunchy, so this is semi morse
1: mm-hmm. so.
0: Wow, and it tastes fresh. It tastes good. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it is. They'll exactly. Love it.
1: That pineapple we're trying, once packaged, could be shelf-stable at least to the three years required by the military, and likely even more.
0: And again, that's just through this vacuum microwave drying technique. There's no chemicals and no preservatives.
1: Right. That's because preserving food in a healthy way... That's core to the CFD's mission.
7: Some people might think, oh yeah, MIEs. there's a lot of preservatives in there, which is not true. Believe me, uh, soldiers' welfare is always in our mind. We, We are not going to produce food that will be harmful to them. Actually, we want to increase their physical condition so they can really perform their job.
1: And the thing I realized after visiting the Combat Feeding Directorate and talking to Tom and David and Lauren and all their super passionate colleagues is that what they're trying to do and what Esther Dickey was trying to do, they aren't that different at the end of the day. The team at the CFD is working tirelessly to bring food to soldiers in really extreme and hospitable environments. Retired Army Colonel David Assetta put it really well. But the real value of this ration is when you're cold, wet, tired and hungry and you're sitting in the rain in the dark on the side of a mountain in Afghanistan and you can have hot food that's that's where the value of the MRE comes in.
0: The technology that the CFD is developing is cool, yes, but all of the work, the technology, the innovation, the testing, the greater purpose, it's all for the sake of providing a warm meal to a soldier. It's to feed people, even in the most dire of circumstances. It's surprising how that mission drives this innovation.
1: Yeah, that surprised me too. Learning about the CFD's motivations gave me a new perspective, though, on the people we started this episode with, you know, those crazy Y2K preppers, and my parents. I talked to my mom about this a little, and she doesn't remember much about why she thought Y2K might be a catastrophic event, or even why she settled on the foods she finally stored, but she had five kids she wouldn't know how to feed if the grid went down. That wasn't a gamble she was willing to make. In all of these stories, you've got people trying to protect others. Esther Dickey, the scientist at the Combat Feeding Directorate, my parents. They're all trying to make sure someone who's going through an extreme situation or potentially extreme situation has the means to survive. I think prepping and food storage comes down to love. <laughs> not what I expected. <laughs> it's not what I expected either, but there it is.
0: That's independent producer Barrick Wright. Special thanks to the incredible team at the Combat Feeding Directorate in Natick, Massachusetts for allowing us to record there for this episode. If you want to see some great photos of Barrick and me chowing down on our MREs at the Combat Feeding Directorate, well, we put them up on our website for you. That's www.americastestkitchen.com slash proof. Check it out. And if you like proof... Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen so you'll get new episodes as soon as they drop. And while you're there, why don't you leave us a rating or write us a review? Because it really helps other people find the show. Proof is hosted and produced by me, Bridget Lancaster. Our executive producer is Caitlin Kelleher. Sarah Joyner is our producer. Associate producer, Caroline Record. Scoring sound design and mixing by Matt Boynton of Ultraviolet Audio. Brian Campbell of Signal Sounds composed our theme music. Additional music by Kyle Forrester and Jordan Pearson. Post-production support from Hen Margolis. Our production manager is Diane Knox. Fact-checking and additional research by Kaya Williams. Jack Bishop is a gluten sausage pizza and the chief creative officer of America's Test Kitchen. David Nussbaum is our CEO. Thanks again to our sponsors, Bob's Red Mill, Kohler, Chef Steps, and Oxo. Proof is a production of America's Test Kitchen. I'm here in the studio with my colleague, Molly Birnbaum, and she's the editor-in-chief of America's Test Kitchen Kids. Hey, Molly. Hey, Bridget. Thanks for having me. (laughs) You bet. Well, why don't you tell us a little bit more about America's Test Kitchen Kids?
5: Yeah, for sure. So, America's Test Kitchen Kids is pretty much exactly what it sounds like. All of the great, reliable recipes and cooking content of America's Test Kitchen, but reimagined for kids. And we just launched a new Young Chefs Club subscription box. Kids receive a themed box filled with kid-tested recipes, hands-on activities and
0: experiments, and other super fun creative stuff. Sounds great. Can you give me, uh, I don't know, an example of some of the experiments that you might receive in one of those Young Chef Club boxes? I can actually do you one better, Bridget.
5: I've actually brought an assistant with me to the studio today. This is Layla. Hi.
6: Hi, Layla.
5: Welcome. (laughs) Thank you. So today we're gonna explore the science of crispy versus crunchy, two super important textures and two of the most popular food textures for snacks. This is part of a science experiment for our January Young Chefs Club texture box. So we're gonna start, you guys both have some chips, classic potato chips and tortilla chips. Do you think you can tell the difference between crispy and crunchy using just your ears, just the sound that you hear when you bite into those chips?
6: Uh, maybe. I don't know. We'll find out.
5: All right. Let's get into it.
6: So I'm going to eat the potato chip first. I think this one is crispy. Crispy, Why? Because it's more delicate and more, like, easier to break. Okay.
5: Great. Want to try the other one?
6: Yeah. Okay, so this one is the tortilla chip. (laughs) What does that one sound like to you? I think that the tortilla chips were more... um, Thick and I think they were crunchy because they sounded like lower pitch in my mouth. Yeah, they sounded like my brothers yelling at each other. <laughs> 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 so, yeah, the potato chips sounded crispier because it sounded like more high pitched in my mouth and it sounded like my guinea pig, kind of <laughs> like um, squeaking and stuff because it was more high pitched.
5: Yeah, that's totally right. One thing that scientists agree on with crispy and crunchy foods is that they sound different when we eat them. And so you are are right. The potato chip is crispy, whereas the tortilla chip is crunchy. And in the science experiment in the box, we go into that in a bunch of different ways, including measuring the force it takes to break one of these chips. But what scientists have found is that people describe foods that make higher-pitched sounds as crispy – and foods that make lower pitch
0: sounds as crunchy. And this was great, and thanks, Layla. Thank you to Molly. And if you want to get this experiment and lots of other great recipes and activities for the young chef in your life, well, then head over to atkkids.com/proof. Use code ATKKids10 at checkout for ten percent off your first box. Hey, Layla, what's your favorite chip?
6: Um, which flavor? Any kind. I like salt and vinegar.